0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 29th, 2022. We're getting towards the end of what has proved to be, I think, a very dark month, Um, a month of war. And perhaps the signs are that April will indeed be spring, it will be a bit warmer and some of the war is going to be turned into peace, not just in the Ukraine, but elsewhere in the world. The news from the Middle East is surprisingly positive and uplifting. One, of course, uh, can't take anything for granted. There have been many false springs when it comes to Arab-Israeli peace. but. Uh, the Israelis are putting themselves in the middle of the Ukrainian conflict uh, as peacemakers rather than warmakers. Uh, the Prime Minister Bennett has been talking to both Zelensky and Putin. Meanwhile, peace seems at least perhaps to be breaking out in the Middle East. Um, Israel, the US and four Arab nations met in the Gulf to talk about uh, some sort of cooperation, very unusual uh lots of pictures for people watching it's very nice to see israeli and uh uh middle eastern politicians and statesmen holding hands talking to one another smiling it's almost as if as i suggested peace had broken out they're of course all worried about the same enemy iran but nonetheless it's positive news It all reminds me of the lyrics of the great Leonard Cohen from Anthem. Uh, Many of you will be familiar with this song. The birds they sang at the break of day, start again, I heard them say. Don't dwell on what has passed away or what is yet to be. Ah, the wars, they will be fought again. The holy dove, she will be caught again, bought and sold and bought again. The dove is never free. Ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light get in. Uh, the, of course, the immortal words of the great Leonard Cohen. And it is indeed appropriate as we get towards spring that we are talking about the great Leonard Cohen, about a remarkable book uh, by my guest today, Matty Friedman, called Who by Fire?, war atonement and the resurrection of leonard cohen Matty is joining us from a hotel room in los angeles he normally lives in israel he's touring with this book it's just out today Matty, i i bet you never thought i could work leonard cohen into the ukraine did you
1: um i didn't but you did an admirable job of it you're clearly a professional
0: what are we to make of those anthem lyrics? Are they classic, Cohen? Uh, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Does that somehow summarize the perfect imperfection of the great Leonard Cohen?
1: I think it does. In fact, if I had to choose a few lines that sum- summarized uh, Cohen's approach to life, I think I would probably choose those verses and, you know, we. You mentioned the wars in U- the war in Ukraine and wars across the Middle East, and that the sense that the world is broken, irrevocably broken, and that we're going to have to work with it as a broken world, and to expect some kind of messianic uh, or utopian solution to our problems is unrealistic. We're going to have to forget our perfect offering—the idea that things could ever be perfect—and we're going to have to, you know, look at the cracks in the world and you know, get get the light that comes through the cracks. So I think that's, um, Leonard Cohen certainly would not have been surprised by the events of 2022. He might have been, you know, a bit depressed by them, but I don't think I don't think they would have thrown him. I think he understood the world as it is.
0: Well, I'm sure Leonard Cohen was at his best when he was depressed. When he wasn't depressed, he was probably suspicious that something was wrong. Um, your book, Who by Fire, War Atonement and the Resurrection of Leonard Cohen, captures Cohen at his very best, at his boast at his most imperfect and perfect. One of the things we were talking about uh, before we went live was that it's a book that reveals Cohen, if not as a monster, certainly as a a classically narcissistic, egotistical, self-centered rock star. We always thought he was beyond that. But you reveal that back in the early 1970s, he was a bad boy like all the rest.
1: He might have been smarter than the rest, but certainly. Well, there's no
0: doubt. No one's ever questioned his intelligence. That's another issue.
1: I, I, I agree that um, m- most of us probably remember the last incarnation of Cohen, uh, where he has this incredible resurrection at the end of his life, and he goes on tour, and you know he's this elegant old yeah. guy with. You a, want
0: it darker, the Cohen of you want it darker. Cohen's we'll get onto that later. That,
1: exactly, with that raspy voice, and he seemed like a, an elegant envoy from a from a more elegant time. And um, one of the things that surprised me researching this book was to meet the young Cohen. He's 39 at the time of the war. He's angry, uh, he's pursued by depression. He's a more, um, he's a harder character to like, but I think he's a more interesting and more real seeming character. And you see someone who's grappling with the dark forces inside his mind and, and trying to know trying to find the light try you know trying to rise above his dark urges and his his base instincts which are very much on display uh in in this story but striving for something you know striving for something higher if i have to describe the classic cohen position it's in the gutter but looking up leonard cohen was in the gutter but he was always looking up and eventually i think that's what redeems him that's what rises that's what makes him rise above other artists who misbehaved, you know, in their thirties and kind of remain there, or at least in our imaginations.
0: It's funny. Uh, thinking about this, um, Matty, we've been talking about the Ukraine war as a return to the 1970s. We've had, uh, Helen Thompson, for example, a Cambridge university academic on the show talking about the inflation and the oil wars of today yeah. as being a return to the 1970s. And of course, The backdrop, or perhaps not even the backdrop, the central character in this book, Who by Fire, is the Yom Kippur War of 1973, which in a peculiar way marks, in some ways, like some other events, the end of the hopefulness of the 1960s. In rock and roll terms, of course, it went from Woodstock to Altamont. Uh, and, And we have this catastrophic war, particularly, I think, a catastrophe for... Uh, the non non Israeli countries. Tell me a little bit about the war. Uh, you're from Israel, so you're pretty familiar with it. Not everyone will know much about it. I didn't even realize before we before uh, reading your book and doing a little bit of research that not everyone even calls it the Yom Kippur War anymore. Some people call it the Ramadan War, which to me is bizarre. But anyway, maybe you can make some sense of it.
1: Sure. This should only take five or six hours. So I hope. uh yeah. right, Well, you've got all the time in the world. <laughs> The Yom Kippur War is, in many ways, uh, chapter two of the 67, 1967 Six Day War, which is, of course, kind of a, a famous victory for Israel in six days. Israel defeats three Arab armies: uh, uh, Syria in the northeast, uh, Jordan in the east, and Egypt in the south. And after that war, Israel really sinks into a kind of arrogance and uh, people misunderstand. I think that the lessons of that war, they forget the limits of force and they become very complacent. And in 1973, it really blows up in Israel's face in the form of a surprise attack on two fronts on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, which is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement on 2 p.m. on October 6, 1973, when most of Israelis are fasting and, and we're in synagogue, uh, there's a surprise attack by the Syrian army on the Golan Heights and a surprise attack simultaneously by the Egyptian army across the Suez Canal.
0: And you capture, and, and brilliantly, it's a wonderful book, by the way, Mattie, you, oh. you capture um, this invasion in the Suez uh, and, and and that is indeed wrapped up in, in in the later Cohen tour. So you do a beautiful job weaving together musical history, Cohen, and 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 what actually transpired uh, in, in the Suez.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. That's exactly what I was trying to do. I realized early on that it wouldn't be enough to write a book about this concert tour. And this was one of the strangest and I think most interesting tours in the history of rock music. But it's not enough because what made it interesting was the war in which it took place. So the book had to be about the war as much as it was about the concert tour and the soldiers who saw Cohen at the worst moment of their lives. For Some of them, of course, it was one of the last things they saw those soldiers had to be as important to the narrative as Cohen. Right, so
0: you're running ahead of a bit of the story, Matty. Not everyone knows that Leonard Cohen performed in the Suez. Oh, right. whilst this this war, this sixth, um, not six-day war, whilst the Yom Kippur War broke out, both in Suez and the Golan Heights and the Iraqis, I mean... One of the things that's really astonishing, actually, now is that there were many other countries involved in the war. Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Jordan, Iraq, Libya, Kuwait, Tunisia, Morocco, Cuba of all countries, and Sudan. I It was me, Sweden, which would have been a bit of an even bigger shock. But <laughs> meanwhile, they were all invading, I don't know all of them, but they were all contributing to the invasion, both of the Golan Heights, which was under uh, Israeli sovereignty at the time, and Suez. Meanwhile, our hero, the great, um, the great Cohen, Leonard Cohen, happened to be on the island of Hydra in Greece. What was he doing
1: there? So Cohen, of course, comes from Montreal and uh, uh, comes from a very tight Jewish community in Montreal, Uh, finds some fame as a kind of minor Canadian poet finds more and more fame and increasing and 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 basically gets out of Montreal moves to uh to Greenwich Village as part of the scene in the village with the great names that we know from those years Nico uh, you know Joan Baez Dylan and yeah the
0: Ch- we all know we all, we all should remember the, the words from the Chelsea Hotel so he did a very fine job putting that into song his a particular song
1: right the chelsea hotel will live forever uh because of Cohen's song, but he um, eventually moves, you know, he escapes uh, from that scene and ends up on this island, this island called the Hydra, where there was a bohemian vibe. There were kind of some early 60s bohemians living on the island, some writers, some artists, and he fell in with them and ended up moving to this island. And in 1973, he was there living with a woman named Suzanne, who's not not the Suzanne of the famous song, Suzanne. She was a dancer that he'd once known in Montreal, but this was uh, Suzanne with whom he had a very serious relationship. Uh, they eventually have two kids together and he's living with her and with their first child, Adam, who's one year old at the time. And he's deeply unhappy. Uh, he feels trapped. as he, So he tells us in his writing, he feels stranded. His music isn't going well. He uh, kind of has lost the ability to to create. He's re- announced that he's retiring. So he's out a creative... Would it
0: would be fair position- to say to, 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 to borrow a cliche that he's sort of, he's, he's caught between a rock and a hard place of being the lecturer and the priest and of course he was both but he didn't seem to be able to combine the two comfortably
1: i think that's absolutely right and there's a character in the book who who uh, comes at him in israel precisely with that critique you know saying what what do you want to be leonard do you want to be a lecturer do you want to be a priest of course as you know some of um, some uh, of our listeners know the word Kohen in hebrew means priest and if you Have the name Cohen, it means that you're descended from the families who uh, served as priests in the Jerusalem temple that was destroyed by Rome in the year 70 CE. These are traditions that are preserved. uh, uh, And
0: and, and Matty, to be fair, not just to the Cohens, but to all the priests in every religion, they tend to be pretty lecherous, don't they?
1: (laughs) What you're saying is that there's no contradiction between being a lecher and being a priest. I couldn't possibly comment on that without getting myself into... I mean, Leonard
0: Cohen wouldn't be Leonard Cohen Without being both simultaneously a lecturer and a priest, that's why we love him so much. That's
1: that's exactly it, and that's the uh that's the that's the idea that he's in the gutter and looking up. You know, he he does what he does, but he knows he should be doing something else, and he's he's torn and he's honest about it, and that's what makes Leonard Cohen so great. So he's on this Greek island where he's escaped everything, or so he thinks, and then this war breaks out, and he hears about it on the radio, and I think surprising even himself, he walks down the steps from his very small modest kind of white-walled house in Hydra. he walks down to the port catches a ferry to athens um goes to the airport in athens gets on the first flight to tel aviv and inserts himself into this middle eastern catastrophe i
0: I know you're in a in a hotel room in los angeles um matty i hope there are some producers banging on your door because this is going to make an amazing movie i can already see it um
1: no, no one seems to be banging on the door at the well, moment. Well,
0: they will be once they, <laughs> they they see this. But um in, in all seriousness he was in profound crisis, wasn't he? And the the you play a, uh, you play this up, but every everybody who's ever written about Cohen plays the the fact up that he was from an orthodox Jewish family um who expected him to be a priest and he turned out at least in his early life to be a lecturer. So the the Jewish background for Cohen is essential.
1: Absolutely essential. He grows up in a, a synagogue that's called Shar Hashamaim in Montreal. That means the gate of heaven. It's a very important uh, Jewish institution to this day. very solid synagogue, um, kind of upper, upper class in Montreal. And the synagogue was founded by members of Cohen's family. So this is an important family in an important uh, Jewish institution. He... Um, Grows up with the words of the Bible and the Hebrew words of of Jewish prayer, very much part of his, of his brain. And even though he leaves that world and and you know goes out into the great, universe to seek his fortune, he 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 takes those words and they never leave him. And it, it shapes his poetry. It's everywhere in his poetry: the biblical allusions, the you know the sly jokes. And that is really kind of it becomes extreme around the Yom Kippur War when we have songs like "Who by Fire," which are really direct riffs on Jewish prayer. But even in songs that don't Seem at first glance to be inspired by Jewish liturgy. You can often find an echo of his, you know, very rich Jewish upbringing.
0: We are speaking with Matty Cohen, a Israeli writer, born in Canada. New book, "Who by Fire," a wonderful account of Leonard Cohen's not very well-known tour, at least outside Israel. Not very well tour, uh, not very well-known tour of Israel. It wasn't really a tour, a, a, a concert there which he sort of happened on almost um, during uh, the Yom Kippur War of 1973. We're going to take a break now, Matty, and then afterwards I want to talk specifically about how he went from Hydra to Tel Aviv and how this bizarre, memorable concert took place. So we're going to take a 60-second break and we'll be back with Matty Friedman, the author of a wonderful new book about Leonard Cohen and the 1973 war in Israel, Who by Fire? Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching, or even reading about this keen on show, I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keen on show. The first of course is by in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio only podcast, you can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or Castbox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh and you can do the same um if we're connected uh on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook, I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is, and on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Matty Friedman, the author of Who By Far? A wonderful book about Leonard Cohen and the Yom Kippur War, this bizarre confluence of events that one would have never expected. Matty, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you present Cohen's uh, decision to go from Hydra to Israel during the war. Ultimately, as a kind of and borrowing some biblical language, a resurrection is that fair?
1: Yes, I think it's fair. Leonard Cohen, in his own description of his life, is always too cagey and too slippery, and, and generally too smart to tell us exactly, you know, what his process looks like and how things affected him. And he never wants to come out and say, you know, event X led it to led led to song Y, and that you know uh, um, uh, uh, caused you know, me to act in, you know, a certain way. So we have to kind of excavate his life and excavate his writings and try to figure out what what was going on. What we can say with some certainty is that before the war, he'd openly been speaking about retirement. He'd said to one journalist that he wanted to shut up. He said, I just want to shut up. And, you know, he kind of wished everyone luck in the music scene and said that he wouldn't be there anymore. And that news was uh, published in the music press in in the Europe in in the US and Europe. So, you know, the fact of Leonard Cohen's retirement was kind of known. And and of course, he was thirty nine. Right. It wouldn't have surprised anyone if he'd lost the thread at thirty nine. Most rock stars don't make it to thirty nine and they certainly don't make it past thirty nine. So that would have been quite, um, quite, quite natural. And then he goes off to this war and um, has an experience that really rattles him. I think it disturbs him. Parts of it he finds kind of magical and parts of it he finds very upsetting. And he um, he leaves after a few weeks at around the time that the war ends. And within a few months of the ceasefire, he releases one of the best albums of his career, which is New Skin for the Old Ceremony. So we have him moving from his declared intention to retire to releasing an incredible album and really kind of re-entering the music world with full energy. And I think that the uh, the main event that happens between those two poles, those two creative poles, the event is the Yom Kippur War. Something changes in the war. So he never comes out and says, I was resurrected by the Yom Kippur War. And he never comes out and says, you know, had I not gone to the war, I would have lost my creative juice at 39. And you would have never heard from me again, by the way. If he had, um, we would never have. Hallelujah, and we wouldn't have if it be your will, and we wouldn't have dance me to the end of love, and we wouldn't have you know you want it darker, and we wouldn't have dozens of other classic yeah. songs that changed music. So I, I
0: mean, I think had he not resurrected, I don't think he would be. I mean, he would be remembered, but just almost as a curiosity of the of the sixties, this Canadian poet who happened to sing a bit, but he I wouldn't be remembered true. as a particularly great artist.
1: That's right. I think that's true. I think it's it's his it's the later act, and particularly the last act when he's. Um, you know this elderly uh, statesman <laughs> touring these packed stadiums at the end of his life. That really elevates him to the pantheon of popular music. And and his and language- it's
0: always and the irony of Cohen is he could have written the narratives himself. He only went back to touring because his manager stole all his money, That's right. and uh, he he didn't create that. But he, he he worked the narrative brilliantly. It's again about the light getting in through the cracks. That's and sweet. the same is true of this tour. The way you present it. It could have almost been written by Leonard Cohen himself. He was both the actor and the author of this. Um, He didn't know what he was doing. He just sort of drifted into Israel and then drifted into doing this remarkable concert in front of these troops who were about to go into war. So tell us about that, how he went from being just another Jewish intellectual artist who came to Israel during the war to actually performing.
1: It's a, it's a great story and not at all what I expected when I, when I set out, I I had always assumed that he intended to play for troops, uh, that he came here thinking that he would, you know, uh, like many Israeli artists play for soldiers and raise morale. Of course, the, you know, it's funny if you know Leonard Cohen's music, there's very little in his music that suggests it would raise anyone's morale. And there were jokes at the time about him going off to Sinai to depress the troops, but he uh, appears in Israel um, without his guitar. He doesn't bring a guitar when he comes. And I think that indicates that he didn't intend to play. And and of course, this happens at a time when he's already declared that he's retiring. Right. And as you note in the
0: book, and this is again, uh, could be Cohen language, he'd spent his life escaping. So this in itself was an escape, an escape from Hydra, an escape from this woman he didn't love, perhaps from his young son, from his career, from Europe, from God knows what. So this is part of his narrative of escaping.
1: I, I, that's absolutely true, and I think that our crisis in Israel was, in some ways, a, a solution to his own personal crisis, and it was a way of getting out. So he was drawn by the events in Israel, but if, but he had a strong desire, I think, to get out of his own personal crisis and hope that the the national crisis would somehow offer him a way forward. You know, offering him. He says it explicitly in this very strange manuscript that I found, an unpublished manuscript that's quoted in the book. He says that he that he hopes that in Israel he can be born again and that he thinks Israel is a place where you can sing again. So he's trying to find his voice, but it's unclear exactly what he thought he was going to do. But what happens is that he's sitting in a cafe in Tel Aviv at the beginning of the war, and he's recognized in this cafe by a few Israeli musicians who are who happen to be there. And they, you know, and it's a
0: small way, and you remind readers, it reminds me when I first went to Israel in the early 70s. This was a small country a very provincial country where you could walk into a coffee house and bump into two or three of the country's most famous writers and poets and musicians. You can't do that these days.
1: No. I mean, at the time, there were two cafes where all the Bohemians sat. So if you wanted to meet every famous person in Israel, you know, if they weren't at one, if they, were, if they weren't at um, at Cafe Kasit, they were at Cafe Pinati. Those were the two. Um, this meeting happens at the second one, at Pinati, when uh, a singer named Oshik Levi, who is a quite a famous Israeli singer, he, he sees a guy sitting in the corner and he says to the person who's sitting with him at the table, who's a famous actress and singer named Ilana Rovina, he says, I think that's Leonard Cohen over there. And she says, no way, what are you talking about? You know, that can't be Leonard Cohen. And he says, no, no, it's Cohen. And he walks over and it turns out to be Cohen. And they um, ask him what he's doing in Israel. He says he wants to volunteer on a kibbutz, on a communal farm to, you know, I guess pick oranges while the... While well, the men have been called up to the front, and they say, "No, no, forget that. <laughs> forget that plan. You have to come with us to play for soldiers." They say, "We're about to go, you know, to the front to play for troops, and you have to come with us." And it's worth it's remembering- an astonishing story, Matty. But it's worth remembering that in Israel, I mean, and it's
0: true. I mean, that's the most astonishing thing. Is I mean, I, I I I assume you didn't make this stuff up. I mean, it really is true.
1: No, no, we have this story from several different sources, including from Cohen himself. uh, In Israel, it's it's worth remembering that going to the front, you know, unlike. You know the, the case in, here in America or or in the UK. You know the front isn't eight thousand miles away. You don't have to get on an airplane and go play for troops in Vietnam or in Iraq. The the front for Israelis is you know getting in a car and driving for an hour or two and you're at the front. That's how small the country is. So they pile into a Ford Falcon, owned by one of these musicians, this kind of uh, improvised pickup band that forms around Cohen. They get in the Ford Falcon and they go off to find the war.
0: And the result is this remarkable concert, which you capture, but hasn't really been captured in audio or video because nobody quite knew what was happening.
1: That's right. I mean, there was so much going on. The The, the army almost loses the war. It's a moment of extreme crisis. There are thousands of, of fatalities and the presence of Leonard Cohen is not a major priority for anyone. Uh, and, and there's no... Documentation or almost no documentation of the tour. So he's not accompanied by a film crew. We have no video at all of these concerts, which is heartbreaking because they seem to have been incredible. We have scraps of audio, but not much more than that. Why it's, was
0: it incredible? In view, view of you, you certainly present it um, as an incredible event.
1: Uh, because it's it's a it's a pure artistic transmission at a moment of crisis. So you have a guy whose theme, right? Cohen's themes are the the, the transience of of our lives and the, and these moments that sweeten our night you know in the meantime and this idea that the world is broken and kind of tragic and here we are we have to make the best of it and he's and he's playing for people for whom those are not you know dorm room clichés these are these are people who could die right he plays for them knowing that he might be the last thing they hear so the stakes are very very high and there's no money changing hands no one's selling tickets no one's selling records everyone is sober And when you see the photographs of the concerts, you can see that the the audience seems elevated and Cohen himself seems very intent, and it's clear that something very important is going on.
0: It's a wonderful book, Matty. And it it struck me as um, very much of a a labor of of love from you. in the sense that, you know, you've written a a number of books, mostly about Israel, Spies of No Country, Secret Lives at the Birth of Israel, um, Mm -hmm. Pumpkin Flowers, an Israeli soldier story. You, as I said, you were born in Canada and you ended up in Israel. You live there now, the Aleppo complex. What was personal about this? I mean, clearly you're a Leonard Cohen fan, as I am, but... uh, was this always a project? Did you always want to write a book about Leonard Cohen? Or did you just stumble on this story and think, I need to write about it? And as, as an Israeli, as a Canadian, as a Jew, I assume there were very serious dimension to this project.
1: As you're hinting, the, 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 the book definitely puts together a few different pieces of my brain, right? The Jewish part and the Canadian part and the Israeli part, they don't meet that often. There aren't that many great Canadian-Israeli stories, and this is one when Cohen showed up in 2009 for a concert in Tel Aviv, which was turned out to be his last concert in Tel Aviv. And it was part of this incredible resurrection tour when he'd come out of the monastery, realized that his former manager had cleaned out his bank account and went back on the road and, you know, ascended to the pan- the great pantheon of, of, um, of, of popular music. He shows up in Tel Aviv and I, I just noticed that Israelis went crazy for Leonard Cohen, and I don't think I'd appreciated it to that point. I, mean, I grew up with Leonard Cohen. I'm Canadian. And of course, Suzanne was always playing in the background when I was a child, but I hadn't quite appreciated that Israelis venerate Leonard Cohen. And I was wondering what was going on. And And um, I saw an article in one of the newspapers, one of the Israeli newspapers, about this tour that had happened in 1973, uh, You know, one of the darkest moments of the country's history. Cohen had showed up. And Israelis never forgot it. And that's not the whole story of, it, of Israel's love for Leonard Cohen, but I think it's a big part of it. People remember that, you know, he didn't have to come. And he and he came, and he didn't play one concert in Tel Aviv and leave. He went to the front. He was at the edge of the front. He crossed the Suez Canal a day or two behind the Israeli army. He put his life in danger with the soldiers. And people people remember it. And it just seemed like such a potent moment, such a strange musical moment, such a weird meeting of musical worlds the world of the 60s and, and the village and and the Israeli army and this catastrophe and uh, this interesting cultural moment in Israel where the 60s are becoming the 70s and um, it was all there so i uh, i thought you know one day i have to write a book about this 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 this, uh, this vein is so rich that someone has to mine it and i'm glad that i had the opportunity to be the first one to, to
0: do so yeah and it's it's mercifully short and, and not of all, not all of it is even written by you uh, some of it's written by Cohen i have to say i don't think I think he was a wonderful singer and probably a decent poet uh, and a remarkable personality. I don't think he's a particularly good writer, do you? (laughs) I mean, certainly you certainly make him look a bad writer. Um, And that's a sort of backhanded compliment. But I mean, he never really would have had his stuff published.
1: Well, he has these early novels that um, um, are interesting to reread now. Beautiful Losers was probably the most the best known of them before he was a musician he was known as a writer before he was known as a musician and and his novels are very uh, they're, they're odd to read now they're very um much of their time and um you know he really comes into his own as as a as a musician and a poet his writing is very um is very energetic um and it's very colorful and it's distinctly leonard cohen and what i thought was interesting about this manuscript which i quote at length in the book because I have this opportunity to let Cohen tell us this story in parts and I figured why should I tell the story when we have the man himself in his own very you know distinctive language it really allows us an, an unfiltered window into his brain which is not the carefully crafted Leonard Cohen of interviews it's not a memoir it's it's raw and unfiltered and written immediately after this war which has clearly rattled him and that really comes through in his in his writing. So I chose a few excerpts from this manuscript. Um, it's, it's not the entire manuscript. The whole thing is actually quite difficult to read and very kind of train of thought and you really have to concentrate to figure out what's going on. But I chose a few excerpts that I think are amazing for letting us hear hear his voice, you know, hear Leonard Cohen's voice again after a few years of not hearing the man himself. So um, I understand why his manuscript wasn't published at the time, but I do think that it adds to our understanding of this particular story.
0: Did he figure himself out at all? I mean, as, as we said earlier, he's he's struggling between being a lech and a priest. And as we sort of discussed earlier, perhaps he was simultaneously both. Always occurred to me that he was almost addicted to sex, uh, or certainly to women, and women were clearly addicted to him. Did he ever get beyond that in his life?
1: He did, and I think that's what redeems him. I think if we'd been stuck with the Leonard Cohen of of 1973, the Cohen we meet in 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 my book, um, we'd have to judge him quite harshly. And uh, as I write in the book, the, you know the way Cohen treats woman, women, women uh, in this in this story wouldn't put up with it these days. What redeems Cohen is the fact that he's self aware. So he he knows who he is, and he's not you know um, he's not drunk on his own mythology. He always has this very strong sense of how failed he is. And at the end of his life, he really becomes something else. And he jokes as an old man that the first time he ever really met a woman was when he was 65. He has that line. Uh, uh, So he kind of, you know, he grows out of it. He grows out of it. He finds peace, his depression lifts uh, eventually and he becomes reconciled with himself. And that's the Cohen we meet at the end of his life, this wonderful figure. Uh, that figure with the fedora and the the Leonard Cohen of You Want It Darker, not, you know, not a sunny, upbeat uh, artist, but a man who's come to terms with himself and with the world and seems very much at peace.
0: Uh, We always think of Leonard Cohen as a one-off, as unique. But one of the things I liked about the book is you make some comparisons, both in terms of this sharp shift from the world of Woodstock to Altamont to a reality check from the 60s to the 70s. But you also fit Cohen in with other Jewish songwriters, North American Jewish songwriters, Paul Simon and Bob Dylan. Do you see lots of similarities between them and the arcs of their career? Both, I I saw Dylan um, actually in um, in New Orleans uh, on his um, Rough and Rowdy Ways tour last weekend. And, it, and in many ways, uh, that album reminds me of, of Cohen's You Want It Darker, this final statement. What ties Cohen with great artists like Paul Simon and Bob Dylan?
1: It's such an interesting question. First of all, you're so lucky to have seen Dylan last week. Uh, yeah, and we had
0: front, front row seats as well at the wow. Sangha Theater, uh, the old Sangha Theater in New Orleans. So it was quite an experience. Amazing,
1: amazing. Um, look, these are three guys who, um, come out of, kind of escape the ghetto, maybe. They come out of Jewish homes and, uh, in America at a moment when Jewish kids were escaping, you know, the straitjacket of those, of those lives. And they, and they go out into the great American world to make their mark. And they do it in very different ways, right? Um, Robert Zimmerman wants to be an American classic. So he calls himself Bob Dylan and, you know, his Judaism is, is very much, um, you know, it's not at the forefront of his of his work. You can find it, and people do, of course. But um, but it's not. You know, Bob Dylan never put that front and center. Uh, same thing with Paul Simon. I mean, I think you can't understand Paul Simon as anything but a, but a Jewish artist. But he, um, you know, his his Judaism is very much America. You know, like the song "America," the promise of America. And, um, and I love I love Paul Simon very much. I think he's such a great just a great musician. And um, Leonard Cohen is something else. Leonard Cohen never changes his name he never claims to be anything that he isn't you know in the village in the 60s when everyone's wearing jeans he wears a suit he's older than the other artists he's kind of stubbornly sticking to this very unfashionable name that places him that marks him as something very specific you can't you know mistake Leonard Cohen for anything but a Jew from Montreal and he um, he never tries to escape his Judaism and he makes it you know this the very center of his of his artistic work and i think that you know, that really makes him different than, than the other artists, maybe makes him...
0: But, but, but both, but all, all, the, all the artists you mentioned, they've all matured in an in unexpected ways. They all, mm. I mean, Cohen, of course, unfortunately is no longer around, but their best work perhaps arguably was done when they were old. It's quite remarkable. And they came out of not entirely dissimilar cultures. So maybe there's nothing that surprising about that.
1: There's something about I agree that there's something about the meeting of 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 the children of Jewish immigrants like my dad, who grew up in New York as the son of of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. There's something about the meeting of these kids exploding out of their neighborhoods in Brooklyn, you know, just coming out of America like crazy. Um, and the, the energy is is so unique. I'm not sure that we can recreate it. Like, there hasn't been another generation after them and they're still with us. And, you know, these giants like Simon, like Dylan and like Cohen. We're
0: all in there. I'm um, for, for better or worse, we're all in their shadow. Let, we, we can't end without talking about You Want It Darker, the final. Leonard Cohen's quite literally his last statement. The song is remarkable. Um, from the song you want it darker if you are the dealer i'm out of the game if you are the healer it means i'm broken and lame if thine is the glory then mine must be the shame you want it darker we kill the flame magnified sanctified be the holy name vilified crucified in the human frame a million candles burning for the help that never came you want it darker hinemi Hinami. I'm ready, my lord. Has anyone ever put their death so coherently into song and left it for us, Manti?
1: Yeah, that song I think hasn't found much popularity at dance clubs. Uh, <laughs> it's not in, in any It's not one of the. Uh, it's not on the top ten DJ playlist. Um, uh, it's hard to think of uh, of someone who wrote you know wrote about it more, more starkly. And of course, it's really his last great song he, he dies a few months after it do you
0: think he knew what he was doing I I, mean, because
1: you suggest in the book that he didn't
0: actually know he was dying
1: yes and that's based on uh, conversations with people who, who knew him and were talking to him at the time i always assumed that he knew uh, you know when he writes sanctified um, sanctified be thy name that's a quote from from the mourner's prayer in judaism so my assumption was that he kind of was acknowledging that his days were were numbered, but um, according to people who, who knew him, he thought that he was actually going back on tour. He had been ill, but he thought he was getting better and was fully planning to go back on the road. And, and that didn't happen. And it, And this song became interpreted kind of as his as his last words. But apparently, that's not actually what Leonard Cohen intended when he wrote the song. But of course, intentions aside, that song will always be remembered as you know the final words of one of the greatest artists of the 20th century.
0: Well, Leonard Cohen will never die. And partly because he's a great artist and partly because he has such a remarkable following, including Matty Friedman, his new book, Who By Fire, War, Atonement and the Resurrection of Leonard Cohen, does indeed resurrect Leonard Cohen in many different dimensions. It's a wonderful achievement, Matty. I think it's going to be a huge success, short, sharp. Anyone who loves Cohen will absolutely adore this book. Um, So congratulations on that. what else should people be reading in late march 2022 as spring threatens to break over the world where the light comes in matty
1: that's right look look at the cracks and try to find the light i have found myself recently reading um the red cavalry stories by isaac babel
0: mm very um, good suggestion
1: inspired you know partly by these um events in eastern europe which which are going
0: back to the old country
1: it seemed very old isaac babel was a journalist who rode with the cossack cavalry the red cavalry in an invasion of poland around 1920 and came back with some of the best short stories ever written it's just wild it's got a crazy energy i don't think anything like those stories has ever been written some of them will seem old and some of them will seem quite current (laughs) And I, I highly recommend it. There's a, there, there are great collections of Babel's writing. He's got some amazing stories that aren't about that war, but his Red Cavalry cycle is particularly good. And I was just reminded at how, how good Isaac Babel was. He was so good that the um you know the, the secret police had to kill him when he was in his late 30s. Uh, Stalin's police uh, famously um, you know ended the life of one of the great literary talents of of those years, but um, but his words live on and I highly recommend them. Another Good question.
0: suggestion. And uh, finally, uh, Matty, uh, in in late March, 2022, as the light threatens to get back into the world, uh, who, who's running the show? Who runs the world these days, Matty Frieden?
1: Do you know what's, what's terrifying for someone of my age? I'm 44, I was born in 1977. And as a journalist, I meet all kinds of people who are you know, more or less running the show. And it's just terrifying to realize that the people running the show are people my age? That's become apparent. You know, you always like to think that the people in charge are much older and much wiser, and we have no reason for concern about their wisdom. And then you find yourself in the corridors of power as a journalist, and you realize that it's just, you know, the people you went to high school with. And that is um, you know, that's quite terrifying. I hope the world is in is in good hands.